Welcome to In the Booth here on Sportsnet 650. It's also, of course, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brendan Batchelor, joined by my co-host, Randeep Janda. Of course, we are also the Canucks broadcast team for games on Sportsnet 650. And full disclosure, this is a bit of a different recording for us, Randeep, because uh, this podcast normally drops on Friday nights. We often record it on Friday afternoons, but uh, with some scheduling conflicts and a couple of things happening, this is a post-game edition of In the Booth. We're talking Thursday evening after the Canucks lost to the Calgary Flames on the road. We are freshly out of the booth. So like, this is a very immediate post-game <laughs> show. So an extended post-game show in a way. And I don't want to make it just a post-game show because that's the job of uh, Sat and Bick and the guys that host the actual Canucks Central post-game show, which, of course, you should go and download that podcast as well. It's on the Canucks Central feed here uh, to get everything you need to know coming out of the game against Calgary. And I recommend you do that for a couple of reasons. One, because it's great content. You want to listen to it. But two, because I don't want to spend a lot of time breaking that game down in minute detail Because in my opinion, there's not a lot to take away from it. This is a Canucks team that's played a lot of games over the last few weeks, second of a back-to-back with travel. And, you know, were the Flames the better team? Yeah, they were. But I don't think it was because the Canucks had some big, you know, step back or regression has been the buzzword in their game. They just looked like a tired group that didn't have it on Thursday night in Calgary. Yeah, and that's what I think you have to look at in that game. Because 60 minutes of ice... Ice time. We we generally try to find storylines to say, hey, what happened in this game? Where was you know the straw that broke the camel's back type of scenario? And that didn't necessarily happen. There are issues within the game where you're saying, okay, a a tired team. Uh, if there's one thing I'm going to focus on, I think the back end of the depth there is something that's going to be challenged here. But outside of that batch, uh, this looked like a tired team. This looked like. The star players tonight looked tired as well. Everybody did. You talk about time zones. You talk about playing three games in four nights. That's real. You talk about, you know, a lot of heavy lifting over the last few weeks here. And sometimes it culminates into one game where you're playing a second of a back-to-back and you just don't have it. You look flat. You look like you maybe don't have as much energy as the opposition who was, you know, sitting around since Tuesday. It was the last time Calgary played. And, and that's what we saw tonight where the Canucks, with their great start, Occasionally, they're allowed to have a game like that based on schedule, and that happened. Yeah, and, you know, again, I don't want to break it down in too minute detail, but where the game sort of shifted for me was a couple of tired mistakes. The first one was the the Mark Friedman play on the 1-1 goal late in the first period. It always sucks to give up a goal late in a period where you've got the lead, you've you know played pretty well on the road first period, and Friedman dives in on a neutral zone play where he doesn't get the pocket, creates an odd man rush, and Mackenzie Weger scores to tie the game at one. And then the other play is the the goal by Noah Hannafin, where Elias Pettersson kind of lets Hannafin get to the front of the net. He doesn't you know bear down on that battle quite as much as you would see him do in a normal game. And again, I called them tired mistakes because I think that's exactly what they were. Now, I do have a lot of time for the conversation about the defensive depth because Friedman, his minutes have been decreasing over the last few weeks, and that was a pretty obvious poor read by Friedman on that goal against. So, um, you know, we can get into that conversation, I think, because without Carson Soucy now, 
till probably the new year at this rate. You know, we're talking six to eight weeks, and we're in the middle of November now. Might be the middle of January back. Um, they are going to be tested on the back end, and their depth is something that is going to need to come through for them. Well, it is going to be an issue here. It's something we discussed preseason as well, where, you know, even without Mark Friedman, they had a, a bit of a gap on the back end. But when you start looking at the top four defensemen on this team right now, look at Hughes Hronick, you got Cole and Tyler Myers. Their ice time in that last game was pretty much 22 to three minute, 23 minutes for every single one of them. And then there's a significant drop-off. Friedman playing sub-12, and that's more than he's actually played of recent in recent games. Noah Juleson. So part of it is, you know, Noah Juleson being in the 15-minute mark. So part of this is trust and who you can trust on the ice. Um, but Batch, when we look forward, and you mentioned it, Carson Soucy not being available for a very long time, that's going to be, uh, I think, the biggest question mark with this team. There's going to be a lot of games this year when they're ready to go, like that Islanders game where they're going to play such great hockey and you can rely on four defensemen to eat 20-plus minutes. But there's going to be some games, that, and I think that's what happened tonight where you're playing second back-to-back and some of your best players, like Quinn Hughes, is arguably, according to Chris Tanev, probably the best player in the league right now. And on a night like that, where he ended up, you know, looking kind of ordinary. He was making mistakes, and those were those were tired issues. Those were fatigue issues, and that happens to the best players in the NHL. They're not going to have it if they eat a lot of minutes, and that's going to happen. So that balance, imbalance on the back end, especially in that final pair or the, you know, the those defensemen, that's going to be an issue for this team until Susie gets back. But the Canucks do have star power that can, you know, push them through situations where they might not have the most balanced back end, but at some point, you're going to have to probably address that in some way or form, whether that's a trade, whether that's a signing. I'm looking at you, Ethan Bear. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see if or when something like that happens. Um, you know, there's been lots of talk about a couple of guys that just beat them on the Flames mm-hmm. in uh, Zadorov and Tanev. Do the Canucks feel like they need to be a bit more aggressive to make a move for one of those players? It remains to be seen. Uh, I do want to get to a listener question. I know we normally do them in the second segment, but it kind of a conversation, so I'll bring it in now. Dibs writes in on Twitter and says, what are the odds that we see Hirose next game? Clearly, Juleson is not working out. And first of all, Hirose was sent down to AHL Abbotsford before the game on Thursday because they had to recall Linus Carlson to get him into the lineup because of the Kuzmenko injury, taking the puck in the face in the Wednesday win over the Islanders. Now, things are sounding good for Kuzmenko. I don't know if that means that he'll be able to come back into the lineup as soon as Sackos, the Seattle Kraken, but... Uh, there is a world where they can send Carlson back down, recall Hirose, and put him into the lineup if they didn't like what they saw from some of their depth defensemen on Thursday night. And post-game, after the Calgary game, Rick Tockett did mention that it looks pretty optimistic for Saturday for Kuzmenko, so that's a thing. If you want to bring Hirose and you want to make a change there on the back end, it is possible. It might be a one-game cameo for Linus Carlson, potentially, um, and then he goes back down and works on his game. And why I like that for Vancouver is, what is the biggest compliment that most people that watch hockey, and definitely Rick Tockett, says about Akito Hirose? Intelligent. Great, hockey IQ. Great yeah. hockey IQ, right? And he just knows when to take his chances and when not to. If for a young kid, for a kid in his middle, mid-20s anyways, he knows when to pick his spots. He can just sit back. He's not going to take risks. He's not going to try to go for the home run swing every single time exactly what this team needs on the back end in a bottom pair role right now is that, hey, if you're going to eat 12, 13 minutes of ice time, can you pick your spots? Can you make the right judgments? The risk management is something that 
Rick Talkett loves, and he he stresses it of saying live for the next shift. Kido Hirose is that type of player. He's not going to risk it all for one play, and that was really the last little bit here. And Mark Friedman against Calgary, unfortunately, that one mistake led to the downfall of the Canucks in the second period as well. Well, the other situation too is that Friedman is being put in a tough spot for him. You know, yep. he hasn't necessarily been an NHL regular prior to joining this Vancouver Canucks group. And I think, you know, he's outperformed my expectations of what he was going to be when they acquired him. But you move him to the left side because you have the mm-hmm. injury to Susie, so he's a right-shot guy playing on the left side. Um, he's not an NHL regular or hasn't been yet to this point in his career this is kind of what we've talked about in the past about finding roles for guys and putting them in situations to succeed. I don't think that's happened for Mark Friedman over the last few games. I also think that, you know, this is clearly not the level that Noah Juleson should be playing at. And yep. um, that's nothing against him as a person, but I don't see him as a, a top six defenseman on this team. But that's the role he's being thrust into right now. So. Could you pull Juleson out of the lineup, say, put him in on the left side, you move Friedman back over to the right where he's a bit more comfortable, a bit more reliable. Maybe you switch up your pairings so you go back to Cole with Friedman, you put Hirose with Myers, um, you know, you, you could go back to Hughes Hironic. I think we were talking about that during the game on Thursday that um, Hughes Hironic being a part was something that kind of prevented the Canucks from dictating the play a little bit against the Flames. And, you know, you are going to have to be wary of the minutes for those guys. But these are the kind of things that, you know, I sort of throw around in my head when I'm looking at what you might be able to do to, you know, patchwork your defense together to get through the next few weeks at the very least until you can find a solution that hopefully carries you through until Carson Soucy's back. Well, the reality is that super pairing of Hughes and Hironic is what, in a lot of ways, is powering this team. You've got the forward strength. We know that. We know what Elias Pettersson and JT Miller can do. But the ability to play on the attack and tilt the rink when Hughes and Hronik are together is a huge asset for this team. This is something that nobody else really is able to do in the NHL right now. And that's why we look at those goals for numbers. And we look at you know the, the underlying numbers that when that pairing is on the ice, they're unbelievable. They need to find a balance for the rest of the back end that they can tap into that. And right now, to your point, you can't do that because then you've got a, a real haves and have-nots situation. And and that's that's unfortunately the, the reality of, you know, Noah Juleson, probably ideally, if he's at the NHL level, he's a seventh defenseman. And the same goes for Mark Friedman. If they're going to play, you have to shelter their minutes, which is something that Adam Foote and Rick Tockett are doing. But now with Akito Hirose, if he's called back up, which you'd expect him to be, you know, that does give you some balance but a lot of this has to come down to the cap situation and how many players you can keep up. With the Kuzmenko injury, it was unfortunate for, you know, you never want to see a player get hurt like that, first of all. And luckily, he seems like he's fine. The other thing is, it's when you need a defenseman, that injury happens, which requires you to call it before. Pew Suter is also injured. So, you know, there's a real limitation on what you can do. But that's, there is a, a bit of a roadmap if Rose comes in. You can get your, you know, Mark Friedman playing on the right-hand side again. But... The reality is you need Hughes and Ronick to play together so they can tilt the rink because that is such a superpower for this team. Yeah, and I think we could both agree that Akito Hirose isn't going to be some magic fix-all no. 
player on that bottom pairing anyway. I liked what we saw from him last year in his limited sample size, but um, you know he's a guy that hasn't played much pro hockey, that the coach talked about his conditioning at training camp, and I think it's probably fair to say it was – you know, not not a shot at Hirose's conditioning in terms of the work he put in in the summer, but he's a guy coming out of college. He's still quite slight. They probably yeah. want him to put on some weight so that he can be a heavier defenseman to a certain extent. And, you know, I don't Hirose, like we're talking about Friedman and Juleson in this conversation. I think we should say the same thing about Hirose. I don't think he's an everyday top six defenseman no. in the NHL at this point in his career right now anyway. No, he, and this is where the defense by committee statement that Rick Tockett made really comes into equi- the equation. You're going to have your top three or four. We can decide on where Tyler Myers, I think at the beginning of the year, people are downplaying what he'd mean to the team. Now, the way that he's playing this season, I think we can say, there is a top four. You look at the ice time, there is a top four rather than a top three. But the defense by committee is going to be on the the bottom end where whoever's feeling it, whoever's playing well, and Noah Juleson's a classic example. Remember, he played at the beginning of the year a little bit and then had a bad game in Philadelphia and did not play for a 11 couple, games. 11, 11 games. games, yeah. So he didn't touch the ice for three weeks, basically, even beyond that. So that's probably what we're going to see the rest of the way, unless something big happens in terms of a trade or a signing that we can all speculate about and have fun and listen to Canuck Central and, and hear what the, the boys are, are you know, hearing uh, across the league and, and listen to 32 Thoughts with Elliot Friedman and, and get updates on the Ethan Bear situation and the trade situation. But one thing I will say about this is that the more I watch this team, they remind me, not the team in terms of the overall Stanley Cup aspirations. There's a long road. But go back to the 2015 Chicago Blackhawks. They had four defensemen that eight minutes. And yes, one of them was Duncan Keith, the Norris winner. Brent Seabrook, Brent Seabrook, a great player in his own regard. But if you start looking at the bottom two or three guys, Kimo Timonen at that point in his career was not playing very much. You know, Trevor Van Riemsdyk, he's still kicking around, but at that point in his career, he wasn't seeing that much of uh, ice time. So there was a, a clear, we're going to lean on these two or three guys to play near 30 minutes a game, and everybody else is going to get probably 12 to 13. I kind of see that happening here with the Canucks. Heronik's going to eat a lot of minutes. Quinn Hughes is going to eat a lot of minutes. You're going to see Ian Cole do that. And I think now that the trust is back with Tyler Myers, he's going to do that as well. And you're essentially going to see probably two or three defensemen not see very much ice time at all unless the Canucks and look at adding somebody, but in a cap world batch, you know, that's difficult. You're going to have to move some things around to make that happen. Well, and here's the interesting thing about the minutes and the way they've been spread out on the blue line is they've got room to play Hughes and Heronic more than they have. Mm-hmm. You know, as I'm looking at the ice time stats right now through 17 games, Quinn Hughes is averaging 24, 17, a game, Philip Heronic averaging 23, 53. Those are not Big minutes for defensemen in the NHL. Uh, For example, Quinn Hughes last year, after Rick Tockett arrived as the head coach of the Canucks, led everyone in the league in average ice time at north of 26 minutes per game. So, you know, part, part of these minutes early in the season is the Canucks have had a lot of leads. They've had a few blowout wins where they can back off those guys' minutes in games. But I look at that and I say, 
Quinn Hughes has shown, you know, he showed it from the end of January on last year that you can play him 26-plus minutes a night and he can handle it. I'm confident that Philip Hironic can handle those kind of minutes as well. So that may be the answer to all of this is, you know, we're talking about the depth and do they call up Hirose and do they make a trade? The answer might just be play the wheels off Quinn Hughes and Philip Hironic uh, because you still have room to play them more than you have. And, you know, maybe we'll see games like Thursday night a little bit more often when the schedule is congested where the top players look tired, don't have their fastball, can't play to the level that you expect from them, but it's a long season. You're going to have those games anyway. I think you can afford to lean even more on Quinn Hughes and Philip Hironic than you have to this point. You're right, but you also want to raise the floor on this defense, which is something that, you know, right now it's they're players that are probably pay- definitely playing more than they should. Right at the NHL level, yeah, for sure. And overall, I think one of the things you have to, we all have to consider here is the reality is at some point somebody's going to get injured. We know that Carson Susie's there right now, but you also have to protect Hughes and Hironic on the back end as well to say if something happens to one of these guys, if they have to miss a week or here, here or there, they're going to be very important to this team. They already are. So, are you in a situation where, yes, you want to play the wheels off them? as much as you possibly can. And looking back at Quinn's ice time last year, it was 25 minutes and 40 seconds per game, which was amongst the top four players in the NHL. That's He played a lot last year. But the types of minutes have changed. He's not as reliant um, on uh, talk it is on Quinn Hughes to, to kill penalties as much because Ian Cole is doing that. Carson Soucy, when he's healthy, is doing that. Tyler Myers is still doing that. So you still have other players that can play that role. In the 29 minutes he played against the Islanders, you know, a lot of that was power play. And so those minutes are different than five-on-five minutes and PK minutes. So you can play those guys, but you can play Quinn probably in a smarter way where he's not, you know, eating a lot of pressure. He's not in harm's way of blocking shots. So you're protecting him in a way as well. Ian Cole, Carson Soucy, those are the guys that are going to play those kind of those difficult minutes. Let's put it that way. So I think with that, yes, you're able to play him more. You're probably able to play him about 25 minutes a game. But the minutes compared to last year, are very different where you're you're using him as an offensive trip even more to say, we're going to put you out there when we need goals. You're going to play a lot of key five-on-five five minutes, but we got other guys that are going to get in the lanes and the cycle breakers like Carson Soucy and Ian Cole that are going to play those those difficult five-on-five five minutes. And I want to actually, yeah, Philip Ronick leads the Canucks in five-on-five five ice time. He's been eating a lot of those minutes. So, you know, it is very different from last year, and you could probably play them both Hughes and Ronick a fair bit, but... It, it's going to be fascinating to see what Adam Foote and Rick Tockett do here because there's clearly a gap here, right, on the back end. Yeah, and you wonder if the coaching staff is sort of looking up to the management suite going, hey, get us a guy, help us out here a little bit. Now we see how hard it is to make player moves in the modern NHL. You touched on the cap situation, how that would be sort of something that, that could prevent the Canucks from doing something in the short term, although, you know, if you put Susie on LTIR, you get some short-term cap relief, but then you have to be able to activate Susie when he comes back from being hurt too. So, um, you know, I guess we may see some movement in the coming weeks. And, like, with my luck, we're recording this on Thursday night. The Canucks will go and make a trade for a defenseman on Friday morning, and we'll have to, you know, record an insert to this podcast. Emergency pod, yeah. And and get it sorted out. But I do want to mention one name, though, that we haven't talked about yet. And I know he was in the running to be called up, but there was an injury. Christian Wolanin. Yeah. This is an opportunity for him if he can get healthy. Talking to Christian at the captain skates, one of the things that management stressed to him was, we want to add a little bite to your game. 
And we want you to work on that. There's a, a path for him to go to the NHL if he can kind of solidify that defensive game a little bit more. We know he can pick up points. We know he's a puck handler. We know he can skate. But can you play some defense a little bit stronger, a little bit more of a spine at the NHL level? And if he hadn't tweaked something in the AHL before the call-up to Hirose, Christian Willanen could have been called up as well. Rick Talk had mentioned that at, at practice. And it wouldn't have surprised me that if Willanen was the guy called up, that he would have gone into the lineup against the Islanders rather than them playing both Friedman and Juleson the last couple of years. For sure, and he's not necessarily the answer. You know, he's a part of the answer, the committee, but when we talk about trust, if he can figure out that defensive side, add a little bit more bite to his game, I think he'd kind of shoot up those rankings because being a left-handed guy that can move the puck up the ice, um, you know, that is something that this team needs right now, especially in the back end. So, you know, maybe a player we haven't talked about too much yet, potentially to watch there as he gets healthier and can he occupy a spot on the left-hand side further down the lineup that might help not necessarily the same style as Carson Soucy but does he give you a little bit more of an NHL ready player that we know has offensive capabilities yeah and I'm honest gonna be honest I'm not sure on the status of his injury situation Tockett said he was dinged up he hasn't played for AHL Abbotsford looking at the game log on the AHL website since Remembrance Day so uh, it's been a few days now that um, you know he hasn't featured in a game although I'll be honest again I don't even know Abbotsford's schedule so they may not have played over the last few days either although that's you know you know a week essentially since he's played in a game. So um, Will Lannan's health will play a factor in, in what they do on the blue line as well. And they haven't actually played since Remembrance Day. So they've got a, a game on Friday night. Obviously, this is a time of recording. They haven't played yet. So we'll see if he's potentially available for the weekend games. Uh, I guess we'll wait and watch the situation with Christian Will Lannan because he could be an option for the NHL club at some point. As the Canucks will be back in action Saturday night at Rogers Arena facing the Seattle Kraken. 7 o'clock face-off, Hockey Night in Canada, Sportsnet 650 will have the call for you as well. On the other side, we're going to take some of your listener questions as we always do. We'll do our rose ceremony. And we've talked a lot about the defense, but I want to talk about the forward group because... In the game on Thursday, Andre Kuzmenko didn't feature, and I think it impacted the top six, and it kind of exposed a little bit of, I don't know if I would go as far as to say a depth problem, but a hole that was created in the lineup when a top six winger went out. So we'll talk about that and much more when we return. You're listening to In the Booth with Brendan Batchelor and Randeep Janda on your official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to In the Booth on Sportsnet 650. Brendan Batchelor and Randy Janda with you as we are every single week. And as I always missed any part of the show, download the podcast on the Canucks Central podcast feed to get this show and plenty of other great programming from Sportsnet 650 every single week. Still lots to come on the show. We'll ceremony later on. We'll answer some listener questions too. But I mentioned it before the break, Randy, coming off the Thursday game, the loss in Calgary to the Flames. Andre Kuzmenko didn't play. Of course, he took the puck in the face in the win over the Islanders on Wednesday night. And I thought played pretty well in that game. Uh, you know, that that puck in the face came on a five-on-three power play where he had drawn both penalties on the previous shift. And his absence 
to me anyway, was notable in the loss in Calgary. I'm interested if you agree. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about, you know, Connor Garland jumping into the top six, Anthony Bavillier having that capability. They don't have that same pop in the lineup as uh, Andre Kuzmenko does. In terms of, we know the star power of Kuzmenko, that shot last year, putting up 39 goals. But what I've liked about Kuzmenko's game this year is people look at the goal totals and say, hey, he's not the same player. You're right, he's not the same player. To me, he's a little bit more complete of a player. And the ice times might not be shooting up right now, but I believe they will at some point. His all-around game, he's better at winning battles. He's better at being a playmaker. Look at the assist totals. He's still a point-per-game player. I like the way he's played, and you know, there's so much more he adds in the top six in addition to the offense that those other players that I just mentioned, Bavillian and Garland, they're not able to do that yet. You have your north-south guys in Mikheyev and Phil Giuseppe in, in the top six. And credit to JT Miller and Matter, too. They're playing more of a north-south game as well. It's a very honest line. They work hard. You know what they're going to do, and they continue to produce. The Pedersen line's a little different, where you need somebody who's that north-south player, but you also have a different blend, a different flair, and Kuzmenko of that alongside Elias Pedersen. And when you don't have Kuzmenko alongside Pedersen, you just don't have that pop in the lineup. So I'm with you. I think, you know, losing Kuzmenko, luckily it doesn't seem like it's going to be a very long injury, but it definitely takes out creativity and a certain type of player that you just thrives next to Elias Pedersen. And I've liked Garland's play of late. I think it's, you know, the last couple of games anyway have been maybe his best stretch of the season after a slow start. And, and we talked about this during the game on Thursday as well, coming off the the you know changing his agent at the start of the year and uh the the speculation that he wanted out um you know he had a a quiet start to the year but I think he settled into his role and role is a key term here where like I was talking a few minutes ago before the break with a guy like Friedman being put in a position not to succeed by being moved to the left side and maybe having more asked of him because of the injury to Susie I think the same is true of Garland. Like Garland is perfectly cast in that third line energy role right now. And that line with Suter and Joshua was playing some great hockey until they had to be split up because Suter got hurt and then Kuzmenko got hurt. So they moved Garland up the lineup. And I even liked that line on Wednesday against the Islanders when Teddy Bluger slotted in the middle. So that to me is where the conversation is, is if they lose a top six winger right now, I don't know if their depth and maybe other guys would have a chance. Like, I, you know, Niels Hoaglander's played some pretty good hockey of late, even though he's been a healthy scratch for a couple of games. He might fit well in a top six role, but I don't have a ton of confidence in any of those guys playing in the bottom six that they could, you know, survive any extended in the top six. And I can imagine that Rick Tockett feels similarly. There's a lot of good things about having a quick start and a good start to the season, right? When you pick up 25 points ahead of everybody else in the division, other than Vegas and LA's obviously in that discussion, but everybody else's is a good country mile behind you. What you can do right now is experiment a little bit, right? You have that, all right, our stars are playing well, but if a situation like this comes up, you can figure out if Kuzmenko is not there, how does Garland look? How does Bavilia uh, look? How does, you know, players that are further down the lineup, it gives you, you're not in a high-stress situation to figure it out right now. There's a little bit of runway, Batch. As you get closer to February, March, April, when you want to be playing those meaningful games and really gearing up for the playoffs, this team has put themselves in a very good position to be doing that later on this year. 
I think now, November, December, are going to be vital for a little bit of experimentation. That's going to come through injuries. Find about your players. And one of the things I'd look at, and I think Connor Garland, to your point, has shown something here in the last week or so to say he has a lot of pride, which is a good thing. Anybody that's you know in the NHL, they believe in themselves. They play a big role on a team, even if it's in a third-line role. And with Garland, I can understand if the confidence was up and down to start out the year. When you're not sure where you stand on the team or if you're going to be on that team, yeah, it's going to affect your your daily life. Any profession, especially a hockey player, that's going to be talked about in Twitter and and you know has to answer questions uh, in a media scrum in front of us, right? So yeah, we suck. Uh, We're awful. Yeah, it's, you're the one who was always asking the first question. <laughs> I feel like you piss off people right off the bat. No, I'm joking. You'd never do that. Uh, but it, it's a tough situation to be in, right? And so him in the last week, you're correct about his game. The hard work's there. Anthony Bavilli is the guy that I think about. I know he's an impending UFA. I'm not sure where the, his fit on this team right now is. I think in the bottom six, he's shown some things, but the consistency has not been there. And the fact that he was not considered for the first look on next to Elias Pettersson, even though they had you know a couple hundred minutes together, five and five last year, that kind of tells me where Bavilli is right now in Rick Tockett's mind. Yeah, and you know... Uh, Garland and Beauvillier are both players who have been the subject of trade speculation here in the early months as this team tries to find a way to shed a bit of cap space up front to help some of those issues we talked about on the blue line. But the difference between the two of them is we know Anthony Beauvillier. Uh, I don't know if I should say we know. I'm very confident that Anthony Beauvillier will not be a Vancouver Canuck beyond this year. You know, from what they've seen from him, and where he is slotting in in the lineup, I don't see them bringing him back after this year, which means he's a likely trade chip before the deadline if they can find someone that wants to add him, and that might be the way that they create a bit of that flexibility. But if your head coach, who's now aligned with your management in terms of their their vision and what they want to do, isn't trusting Beauvillier in those spots, and let's be perfectly honest, Beauvillier's deployment to this point in the season is fourth line deployment. He's been on the fourth line more often than not. Um, You know, I think it's pretty clear where he sits in the organizational hierarchy and how he may not be here long-term. Garland's different though, Mm -hmm. because, you know, as much as he may want a move and, you know, now there's been speculation that because the team's got off to the good start, he may not want that move quite as much. Uh, That remains to be seen, but he's a harder contract to move because there's some term there. You know, he's probably going to be here for a couple more years um, unless they can find a team that really likes them themselves Connor Garland so I understand elevating Garland over Beauvillier one because I've liked Garland's play better but two because Garland's a guy that's probably going to be here for a few more years and that's fair Beauvillier you know when we look at his inclusion in this lineup and this team moving forward one thing to keep in mind you mentioned it the expiring deal is huge if you're a team that's not going to the playoffs still going to need players for the rest of the season and if you're offloading somebody who's very much a rental for acquiring team, potentially the Canucks, you need to take back a player uh, to maybe make the cap work. So in a situation where the Canucks are acquiring somebody, I could see why he'd be an attractive option to say, hey, give us a player and maybe we can take a draft pick coming back the way uh, as well. So, you know, from an acquiring team's perspective, 
I would understand why he would be, hey, we need players. We need, uh, you know, we've got young players here. We want our compete level to be high uh, to end off the season. So there is going to be a little bit of attractiveness, I think, even though he's having a subpar season. Last year, he had 40 points combined with the Islanders and the Canucks. Came to Vancouver, hit it off with Elias Pettersson, and was pretty good on the power play in the bumper spot early on. Just hasn't been able to find that. But going back to your original conversation about, you know, what's behind Kuzmenko, essentially, if he's injured, who's going to step up? I think right now it is Connor Garland, but you have maybe a month, two months to figure out, all right, can you produce though? Because in theory, the really good teams in the NHL and those teams that win a round or two, they have the next man up policy where the third line right winger, third line center is able to jump up and maybe there's a difference, but they're also able to do the job. Do the Canucks have that this year on the wings? That's something that, as of right now, I don't think it's convincing. And clear gap in quality in the top six For and sure. the quality in the bottom six. And, you know, a lot of teams in the NHL are like that. That's not a slight at the Canucks, but you're right. There are true Stanley Cup contenders who their third liners can be second liners when they need them to be. Or their third liners are players who would be second liners on other teams. And, you know, I think Beauvillier is an interesting guy to talk about in this situation because in a world where you move Anthony Beauvillier away in a trade, let's say, like you were alluding to, you do it to help the blue line. You know, he's the guy that has to go the other way to make the money work, but the other team doesn't mind because he's expired at the end of the year anyway and is going to be a free agent. I feel a lot more confident about the depth they have in the AHL coming up and being able to fill in for a guy like Beauvillier mm-hmm. than I do a bottom six winger being able to fill a top six role if someone like Kuzmenko goes out of the lineup. And I would extend that to Phil Giuseppe too, who isn't producing a ton, but he's so consistent with the way that he plays that I don't see anybody else unseating him in terms of a, a spot in the top six. And I know we saw the lines in the blender, uh, especially late in the game in Calgary on Thursday, but I think you know, uh, it, it would really surprise me if Phil Giuseppe wasn't back on that line with Miller and Besser going into the game Saturday against the Kraken. But in your bottom six, okay, you lose a guy like Beauvillier, guess what? You've got someone like Niels Oman or Jack Studnika in the AHL. Yep. Those are guys that, you know, had good training camps. In the case of Oman, I think the head coach probably trusts him. It wouldn't surprise me if we see him back up with the NHL roster sooner if they can make it work or if there are some injuries. Um, but I don't know if that guy's there in the bottom six to move up the lineup. And I can hear people shouting at their radios or their phones or wherever podcasts. What about Niels Hoaglander? And I want to bring this back to a conversation we had on the pregame roundtable on Sunday going into the game against the Montreal Canadiens where Hoaglander was a healthy scratch after the loss in Toronto on Saturday night. And I thought you did a job of breaking down some of the deficiencies in Hoaglander's game and why he might not have the trust of the head coach right now. Because, like, we tweet out the lines, or I tweet out the lines, and I always see people say, you know, where's Hoaglander? Why isn't he being given the opportunity? Why isn't Garland in the top six? Or, you know, why are they playing so-and-so over Gar- or over Hoaglander and Hoaglander's scratched? 
you know, there's there's a lot to like there offensively. I think he's been really good on the forecheck. We saw him score a nice goal on a tip play against Calgary on Thursday, but it's that 200-foot game, the trust from the head coach, and the defensive reliability that haven't been there for Hoaglander, and there was one goal in particular in that game against the Leafs that really showcased that. Yeah, that was the 2-2 goal that William Nylander scored, and really the play starts in the neutral zone where Niels Hoaglander's trying to hit Sam Lafferty in stride in the neutral zone, and first miscalculates on the pass, which happens. You know, mistakes happen, but you give up the puck in the neutral zone, and that first pass is is not a great one, and it goes back the other way. That's one mistake. You can live with that because it's a hot times, and the timing doesn't work out. But Batch, going back in the zone, after you give up the puck in the neutral zone, there's an opportunity. The puck comes around the boards, and Niels Hoaglander doesn't engage in a puck battle along the boards. He doesn't chip the puck out. The Leafs keep it in, William Nylander has a great opportunity that if you go back to that game, remember that left to right save that Thatcher Demko makes, unbelievable save. That happens because Neil Ho- Niels Hoaglander doesn't engage in that battle. Play continues, and Nylander ends up scoring a goal, and that's something that you go back and who's looking and who's puck watching on the play and doesn't have their man? It's Niels Hoaglander. So you can, if you want to be kind. Two mistakes for sure on that play. Potentially a third one in the neutral zone, but I, I'll give I'll, I'll take that one away. But two key mistakes in your own zone, and it was actually Tyler Bertuzzi that Demko made the save on originally, and then Nylander ended up scoring. So that really that play tells you a lot. Where Niels Hoaglander's so good on the forecheck when he's engaged, he's very very tough to play against. Go ask a bunch of NHLers this year that have really not liked playing against him, including. Even some of the New York Islanders players, I noticed in that game as well, they were going away out of their business, out of their way, including Matt Martin, to, to you know engage in a battle with Niels Hoaglander between the whistles. But here's the problem. In the defensive zone, do you lose your assignment? Do you do your job? And he isn't doing that consistently enough. So if you ask, why is he scratched? Rick Tockett pretty plainly on pra- at practice this week said, on a goal in Toronto, he made two mistakes. And it's the exact same goal we talked about on Sunday. So there was a reason. That's why he wasn't in the lineup. And that's something that, you know, fans might say, oh, it's one goal. It's a couple of mistakes. Why is he being scratched for that? That's not the only time that this has happened to Niels Hoaglander. And this comes down to trust. And Rick Tockett, and in general, coaches in the NHL, like predictability. They like guys who they know what they're going to give them from a night-to-night basis. It's basically the sole reason, and, you know, Phil DiGiuseppe has done a great job. He's earned his spot in the lineup. He's worked really hard. But what does Phil DiGiuseppe do? He makes the right play 99 times out of 100. And head coaches are always going to give opportunities to guys like that over guys that maybe have a higher ceiling in terms of skill, but don't do the right things that you need to do to win on a night-by-night basis. So is there a chance that Hoaglander gets a look in the top six if they're going to do some of that experimentation that you were alluding to? Uh, You know, they may not have to if they don't have injuries, but if we do see some of that, could Hoaglander get a look up the lineup? Yeah, I think it's possible because he has the offensive upside. He's had some chemistry with Pedersen in the past, but it's those kind of things that you're talking about on that goal in particular that are going to lead to Rick Tockett 
not wanting him to give him the because he needs to trust a guy that he's going to give a lot of minutes to. And it's why, even though Hoaglander at times has played well, at times has been, you know, under the skin of the opponents, getting in on the forecheck, creating things in the offensive zone, his minutes consistently are under 10 minutes a night. It's because the head coach doesn't trust him in situations like D zone starts or close games in the third period. For me, it's a, a ways off here. I think he's got to show a lot more consistency in the bottom six and a lot more, you know, responsibility in his defensive game. The one thing I'm watching, and I think Andre Kuzmenko is very much in a similar situation. Not that he's a top six player, but when we're talking about March, April, and May, and ideally June at some point in life, uh, here is uh, Vancouver, right? <laughs> you have to have trust in your top six guys in those final minutes of a game to say, you're my top line, Ilya Mikheyev, I have all the trust in the world. Andre Kuzmenko, if you're fluctuating, fluctuating around 15 minutes per game, that means playing maybe some of the high-stress moments when you're protecting a lead. And Kuzmenko's not doing that yet. So I think, Neil, for me, Niels Hoaglander's a ways off in that conversation. I think Kuzmenko's got to show in the next couple of months here that he can be relied on in those moments where if those numbers are 19 minutes a game, 20 minutes a game, that's telling me in five-on-five -five situations late in a game batch, he's on the ice with Mikheyev and Pedersen, and they're closing out games. So even before we get to Niels Hoaglander, I think Kuzmenko has to show that too. He certainly does, and it's fascinating to see that in close games, his minutes go up. In games where the Canucks are protecting leads and sometimes multi-goal leads, his minutes go down. And that tells me everything you need to know about what they see Andre Kuzmenko as as a player right now, which is a supremely talented offensive player. So if you're chasing a game or you really need a goal, he's a guy you're going to throw out there. But if you've got the lead and you're comfortable, they do not trust him in those sorts of situations where you're trying to salt games away. And, you know, he's going to remain a top six winger because of that offensive upside. And to a certain extent, it'll almost be by default, because as we've talked about, I don't like any of the bottom six wingers to be regular members of the top six. But when you get later into the season, when you get into a grinding playoff series, potentially, you can't throw your top guys over the boards again and again and again. Single overtime game. Yeah. Every chipping in that scenario, and you're going to have to go out there for starts in the defensive zone as well as the offensive zone, and you're going to have to play matchup minutes at times, and you're going to have to find a way to be reliable. And for a guy like Hoaglander, it's a different conversation because he's further down the lineup. It's entirely possible that they choose to scratch him when they get to those parts of the game, which I know will infuriate some fans because of his offensive upside. Kuzmenko's such a talented offensive player that you can't scratch. You need him to bring his defensive game along so that you can trust him in those spots and that he's not an anchor on you in some of those potentially very meaningful games that this team hopes to be playing. And, you know, I go back to the original point where you have some flexibility right now because you are in a good situation. You're not taking for granted the, you know, the opposition that's coming up here, but you have an opportunity to test it out in some situations. We've seen Connor Garland play in late minutes, uh, late games to protect a lead where Kuzmenko is seeing more of the bench, but this does give you an opportunity to, what does Rick Tockett say? Meet pressure with pressure. All right, let's throw some pressure at Kuzmenko. Let's throw some pressure at Hoaglander because you're not treating every game like it's game seven right now. You've built, you know, some good padding there. So you do have some options. So batch like this is, you know, when you have a, a special season so far for the Canucks, everybody's cranking out points. Thatcher Demko looks amazing. You've got Philip Hronick that is packing, you know, just 
every game he's doing something, whether it's a 100-mile-per-hour shot or picking up assists. The top three, we don't need to talk about those guys anymore because they things. There's this fascinating side storyline to say, all right, of the other guys, who's got the trust and how as the season goes? And let's get into some listener questions now. We've got a few minutes left here on In the Booth. Uh, we already took one from Dibs in the first segment talking about Hirose. Uh, I want to get to one from Andrew who writes in on Twitter and says, the Canucks need a bleep disturber like Torres, Pierre, etc. Who is available? We aren't the type of team to have a feared fighter. We are getting pushed around on the ice. And again, the context that a lot of these questions are coming in in the immediate aftermath of the Calgary game. But I do think it's a fair point that there is um, that element of the game is not the element of the game that the Canucks are built on. And you know what? That may just not be their style as a team. I don't know if they internally would prioritize going out and getting someone that can be that kind of player. Maybe they would, um, but they've got bigger fish to fry, as we talked about on the blue line. So um, as much as I agree, I think they could at times have more pushback or have a kind of player that's a bit of a deterrent like that. We see less of that in the modern NHL, first of all. We've seen how poorly that's worked for the Leafs signing Ryan Reeves. Um, so I, I don't know if that's something I would expect to see from this Canucks management group. It's a great question, though, because if you look at history and the way that the Pittsburgh Penguins were built, very similar kind of style of play. The Canucks play fast like that. They're tr- attempting to play fast. They're attempting to have defensemen move the puck and process the game really quickly. The 2016-2017 teams in Pittsburgh were very similar in the sense that top two centers are strong, elite players, They're wingers, they want to go faster, they want to play a north-south game, and a really connected style of play. There wasn't an agitator on either of those cup-winning teams. Later on, Jim Rutherford tried Ryan Reeves. Yeah. And then traded him. Later on, he traded for Eric Goodbranson, and then traded him. So, they have done that in the past, but the teams that had success in Pittsburgh did not play that style. They had players like Ian Cole, who went... He steps up. He's aggressive. I like to call him the cerebral cerebral assassin, Triple H style. Triple H, yeah. Because you don't see him coming, but he'll drill you. Just go at ask Matt Duchesne. So I understand the idea of having an agitator or somebody that really plays that style of game. But I look at those teams that they built. Patrick Alvin was a part of that. Jim Rutherford, that was his team. I don't think they want to play that style. I think they want to beat you with you know aggressive play, playing on the front foot, and hitting you at your pressure points rather than bullying you. Last question we'll take is from Brian. I know we just lost talking about the Canucks losing on Thursday to the Flames, but how fun have the games at home been? That crowd pop when Hughes scored the winner was nice and loud. Yeah, it was. The building, especially over the last couple of weeks, I would say, with this team having success and people sort of buying in that it wasn't an aberration, that they are an improved group. The atmosphere in the building has improved, and it was especially fired up for that overtime winner against Horvat and the Islanders on Wednesday. Well, first of all, shout out to you for your call on that. <laughs> At Batch Hockey and TikTok, check it out. It's a great call. There's no nervous energy in Rogers Arena. In the past, whenever this team had leads or they were chasing a game, people were paranoid. People were nervous about, oh, man, here we go again. There's a confidence in this team because we've seen something different this year. There's a confidence in Quinn Hughes. There's a confidence in Elias Patterson, JT Miller, Thatcher Demko. When the team's having an off night, guess what? You got that guy to back you up rather than being powered solely by him, which is what we've seen in the past. So I think once 
the team shows confidence and plays a certain style batch, the fans often will have that same energy and that same mindset. So to me, there was a culture change not only in the locker room, but that's translating in the arena as, as well a bit. And this gives us a chance for me to give a cheap plug for our social media accounts because you bring up the TikTok, at Batch Hockey, TikTok, Instagram, social media platform formerly known as Twitter as well. You're at Randy Janda on all three of those platforms, so make sure to follow us for all of our thoughts and analysis of this Vancouver Canucks team. All right, uh, we're tight for time as we often get here at the end of the show, but let's get into the rose ceremony. Randeep, your rose for the week. I'm giving my rose to Canucks fans. I think the way that they had the Bo Horvat situation and the way it went down against the Islanders was perfect. You had respect for the player and what he meant to the organization. You acknowledged the journey. You also acknowledged that he's on the opposition now, and it's okay to boo somebody on the opposition because they're no longer on your team. Sports is tribal, it's cool, but you recognize what he did for the organization. You recognize it was a tough time. Uh, it was a cool moment, see him get emotional, and Canucks fans, I thought, hit it perfectly. And then you remembered, he's on the other team, we're cheering for our team. I, I loved it, so my rose goes to Canucks fans that were at Rogers Arena. I'm gonna give my rose to Philip Heronik for the shot heard round he thought, and this is a classic case, as you know, Sat mentioned on the pregame show before the Calgary game, of the facts getting in the way of a great story. Initially, the puck tracking data that we have available to us in the booth showed that that shot was 107.9 miles per hour that tied the game at three against the Islanders on Wednesday. We heard from the NHL on Thursday before the game. Uh, it was actually 100.37 miles per hour. They had some sort of technical glitch with their puck tracking, which is still an incredibly hard shot. I believe it's one of the top 10 hardest shots recorded in the NHL this season. And it was nice to see Heronik get his first goal as a Canuck as well. He's had such a tremendous run with assists. For him to bulge the twine was nice. And I'm going to believe that that shot was 108 miles per hour and not... 100. Uh, we, we're going to believe it that way, but I wanted to actually acknowledge that that made me think of the fastest pitch in MLB history, Raldis Chapman, 105, which is, if you think about it, yeah, an individual using their arm to throw a ball that fast is mind-boggling. So shouts to Philip Hronick, but I pitched to say, I can't believe they did that. I, I, baseball players are freaks, uh, relievers especially. Yeah, unbelievable. And that's a great way for us to finish our show this week. Thanks for joining us on in the booth again get the podcast if you missed any part of the show if you're tuning in on sportsnet 650 it comes out every friday except when the canucks play on friday and then we you know move things around and, and figure out when we're going to put it out but thanks for joining us again this week we'll chat with you next week right here on your official home of the canucks sportsnet 650